Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. After lots of back and forth, Katie and I have finally figured out how to actually be able to record. Surprisingly, when it's summer holiday for your kids and they're all home all the time, it's a lot harder to find a few quiet moments to record. So, Katie, what's going on in your house these days? Uh, mine are thankfully not home at the moment. Um, yes. But yes, they're going to be home all day tomorrow. Um, we're at that weird point of the summer where it's like we're past the halfway point. So now we're into that downhill slide of um, doctor's appointments and dentist visits and all that before school starts. You know, they have to have all their well-child checkup sort of things and talking about, you know, back to school shopping. Um, when do your kids actually go back? They start back Middle of August? August 23rd, but the girl child has okay. two weeks of summer school before that. Um, I think because she had a, a fairly substantial speech delay, she is a little bit behind on some of her sound recognition for learning to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... For many reasons, our school is very proactive about things like summer school and after school tutoring, and she loves it because she loves school. Um, so she's very excited to go to summer school and, you know, get more school than the other kids get. She's she's very excited about that. Take um, that, other kids. Yeah. To heck with you guys. She's getting more school. She could be even smarter than yeah. the rest of you. Um, but that's starting up pretty soon. And signed them both up for gymnastics so I'm sure there's going to be some you know doctor's notes for that and just getting all that hoo-ha ready and we're getting to that point where the combine got pulled out of the shed last week Um, obviously not ready to run it yet but we're moving in that in that general direction yes yeah making sure things are kind of ready yep yep and oats will be ready to to run through probably pretty quick they're looking pretty brown so they'll be ready to go pretty soon um in the big excitement apparently a uh, jack-o'-lantern that got left on the back step too long last year has sprouted a pumpkin patch in my flower bed next to the front door so the boy child is now lobbying for the purchase of a pumpkin harvester if anyone knows where we could purchase one that might be suitable for one plant um, yeah. I, How many pumpkins does he think are going to come out of this plant? Well, so far only one, which I'm really praying right. there's a second one on there, because if we get one pumpkin for two kids, it's going to be ugly. Um, yeah, I don't know how many pumpkins he's anticipating. I suggested that we could do it by hand, but he was not having it. Um, yeah. The only other... Just pick it up. That's too much. The only other update, he found a, a patch of bare dirt in the yard the other day, and so he brought all his tractors out, and I shelled some corn for him, you know, and off an ear from the grain bin, and he planted it, and he watered it, and he put in a little sign for it and everything, and 
And then he left with Daddy to go get some supper. And about the 30 seconds after the car pulled out of the driveway, I looked out the window and my chickens were out there pecking all the corn out of the ground and eating it. So hopefully he won't notice <laughs> if nothing grows. Yeah. But he didn't actually see it happen, so he doesn't have a no. uh, have a grudge against the chickens no, right now. Not yet, but I'm sure any day now it'll happen. So how are things in your world, Arlene? Things are going well. Um, we've got a few, like I said last time, cow shows are on the calendar. My husband and daughter have a few judging events that they're going to over the next few weeks. And my oldest, my daughter, actually ended up getting a job working for someone else, um, kind of in preparation for and at one of the big summer shows here in Ontario. So she's going to be gone for about two weeks, I guess. Um, they, they left this afternoon to go to a judging competition and then they'll, they'll drop her off at that other place on their, on their way back. So means a few more chores for the rest of us, but we bet we'll, we're going to have to get used to it because she's going away in September. And so we need to be ready for, uh, to take on all the jobs that she has, uh, so expertly taken on over the last few years. So that's going to be adjustment for, for everybody. And we got uh, a request in from our next door neighbor for some chicken checking while they go on vacation. So my 15 year old being very, um, uh, industrious, maybe. I'm not sure if that's the right word. Anyway, I told him how much she was willing to pay per visit and that she didn't need him to check on them every single day. And he's like, but if I go every day, then she'll pay me for every day, right? And I was like, well, maybe not. <laughs> I, think, I think she'll pay you what she's willing to pay you. <laughs> so if you go every day, that's fine. But if she says they don't need to be checked that often, then maybe not. So we have to go over there this weekend and uh, check on what her expectations are for for chicken chores over at their place. We don't have any birds left at our place, so we get to keep the eggs too, so that's an added bonus. I don't know if he considers that part of the payment, but as the mom who's making sure that those chores get done, I will, I'll happily accept them. And what else has been up lately? We went to my parents' cottage on the weekend, so that was fun. My parents bought a cottage last summer, and so this is our first full summer with them having access to the water and they don't have a, there's no motorized uh, boats yet, but lots of kayaks and some canoes and lots of swimming is going on there. So that's been no, pretty uh, fun. No creepy guys with axes in the woods this time? Uh, like, not that I've seen, Like no. it, my, uh, my visit with your brother-in-law. Uh, for our listeners, we spent an evening at Arlene's folks cabin. It is lovely, but I looked out the window and there was a man that I did not know with an ax perhaps a hatchet directly outside the window staring in at us um thankfully the rest of them knew who he was because i was not quite prepared for this <laughs> this sort of a greeting from the locals yes uh, but indeed it was our yeah. brother-in-law who is a lovely gentleman yeah but yeah not not so scary when he's not holding a hatchet no, for sure no and i don't know if we've actually talked about it here or not maybe it's come up in passing but we have talked about the fact that I grew up on a farm and when we're talking about the cottage, um, I will say that my the farm that I grew up on has been sold. My parents sold it a few years ago and having a cottage is kind of, I'm not saying that it would be one or the other, but it's not something that I could have pictured them doing if the farm was still something that was in the family, I guess you should say. So I know that you and I, Katie, talk a lot about, you know, 
hoping that farms stay in the family and that maybe our kids will take over or maybe not. Who knows what, what's going to happen in the future, right? But I also want to say for people who are maybe in that place where the family farm is not going to continue, that there is life after the farm and that it's not, while it's important and, you know, a lot of us value that, that it's not the be-all and end-all and that if if farms don't stay in the family, the family is still the more important part of that equation. So I'm not going to go into any details, obviously, on why things happened the way they did. But yeah, it's enough to say that the family part is more important than the land sometimes. Jim and I did some, um, we went to a, a farm couples weekend before we had the kids and one of the big things was about to set, you know, your really top priorities for your family rather than just for the farm. And realizing how much our family was a higher priority than the farm. I mean, ideally, they would both be successful. But to really literally put it in writing that doing, and I mean, obviously, families split up and shit happens i mean that's that's just what it is but whatever we can yeah, do to sure. to not let the farm come between family members let's put it that way um that that's our higher priority because we know a lot of families who are estranged because of farms and that's a family farm doesn't mean much if the farm is what rips the family apart so Mm -hmm. you know um yeah and people's health be that mental health or physical health is more important too right you can't you can't sacrifice yourself for something that i think we've talked about this before too to to honor your ancestors doesn't mean to to put yourself in the ground early right it doesn't doesn't do doesn't you don't you're not honoring yourself or your ancestors if if you can't, if you can't live the life that you are meant to live because you're trying to maintain something that, that is beyond your capacity. And I'm not saying that it's easy to know when that, when that line has been met, but that's the, one of the hard truths that some of us will have to deal with at some point, I suppose. I know, um, whether it's the farm or an off-farm job or whatever too, it can be, and I'm certainly guilty of this, real easy to say, well, I'm doing this for my kids, but if if it ruins your relationship with your kids or your kids don't know who you are or they're learning priorities that are not the priorities you would be teaching them if you were being more clear-minded about it um it's not really for your kids and i am i'm absolutely guilty of my kids saying oh mommy has to work now and it being a very negative thing because especially working from home and this is obviously absolutely true when you live on the farm it's way too easy to let that work time just seep into everything you know it's it's not a nine to five and mm -hmm. it can be real hard to back away from that but yeah it is sure. very important well, this has been a deeper anyway. intro than we normally go for. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> wow. So this episode that we have coming up for you is one that Katie and I are really excited to share with you guys. And 
I am going to give all the credit to Katie for being the person who, when she finds someone out in the world that she wants to talk to, she just goes ahead and asks the question and asks if they want to be on the podcast. And this person said yes, and we were both nervous and super excited to talk to them. So we can't wait for you to, to hear this interview. So enjoy. Yay. Yeah, just, just put some lube on it. I'm like, I'm here for lube, but sometimes that is not enough. Yeah, that's right. We're going to leave that in because that's a good way to get started. So today... That's an awesome okay. way to get started. I feel like that's a good... Yeah. Um, I don't want to say warning, but a good uh, yeah. intro. It sets the tone. Yes. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. So today we are very excited to be talking to Emily Nagoski, who's the author of the best-selling book, Come As You Are, and its associated workbook, and also is the co-author with her twin sister of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. She's also the author of romance novels under the pen name Emily Foster, and she has her PhD in health behavior with a focus on human sexuality and can be found on multiple podcasts, TED Talks, and Netflix, including ours, which is so exciting. So... Emily, we start each of our interviews with the same question. So it works really well for farming people, but also for non-farming guests. So we always ask, what are you growing? So this can cover families, careers, businesses, and also crops and livestock <laughs> if you happen to have a farm. So Emily, what are you growing? Uh, I am currently growing my book, which is about six weeks past its deadline. <laughs> That's a good time. I'm sure your publisher's fine with that. It's, I, you know what, actually my publisher has been amazingly supportive. My editor is so here for me and the feedback I'm getting is really helpful. And the book is just taking the time it needs to become the book that it always needed to be. Exactly. You can't rush that. But that doesn't mean I'm not like terrified and exhausted. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us in the midst of this. Oh, God, I will take any procrastination that seems like productive that I can get my hands on. I am delighted to talk to you. It's uh, marketing, you know, little tiny book. <laughs> okay, sure. So before we go any further, is that a giant set of lady parts behind your head? Or am I just like... Right here? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that is I'm one of my like... three vulva puppets. Um so these are made by, uh, I think her name is Dory Lane. Uh, House O Chicks is the original website. The Vulva Puppets uh, are originally sex education and sex therapy tools. So if you hand someone a puppet that represents their genitals, it's this very like approachable, gentle way to strengthen your relationship with your own body parts. And the Vulva Puppet is part of that. This particular vulva is uh, black lace and silver satin with purple satin inner labia. Her name is Cassandra and she is my most recent vulva puppet acquisition. I have a slight problem with collecting vulva puppets. I have th at least four or five ultimately. It seems a little more approachable than the, what movie was that? Fried Green Tomatoes where the women all go and get handed a mirror in a big circle and are expected to, you know, inspect their lady parts. Seems a little... Yeah, that ugh. can be that can be a lot for people. So when I was 18 years old and getting my original training, my earliest training as a sex educator, looking at my own genitals in the mirror was a homework assignment for me. Annie Lomax, my trainer, the group said to the group, your homework is go home, get a mirror, and go look at your own genitals. And 
Um, I received only very regular sex education. I was not explicitly taught to feel ashamed of my own genitals. Uh, and yet, when I went to look at my own genitals in a mirror, I felt like I was going to confront an enemy. Where did that message come from? I don't know. No explicit messages just seeped into me from the broader culture. And then when I actually did look, I instantly burst into tears because it turned out all this times my genitals were just this regular, ordinary, integrated part of my body, like the soles of my feet or the backs of my elbows. And I had spent all these years with this fear feeling, with the sense that it was the enemy. And I felt this sudden grief for the negative messages I had been sending it and all the sort of discord I had built between me and this part of my body that was just a normal part of me. And that moment actually is sort of the foundation of my work as a sex educator, knowing that anytime I have a question, the answer will ultimately come from me turning toward my own internal experience, turning toward my own body with kindness and compassion. And folks, that's why Emily uh, has a book deal. And, you know, I'm sure it's making <laughs> bajillions of dollars telling us about vulvas. I'm sure it's just a disgusting amount of money. So that actually... We had to replace our roof and it helped with that. Yeah, we've been, we've uh, done a roof project recently too. It's uh, it's a lot. It's a thing. Yeah. Um, so that actually leads perfectly into my first question, which is, how did you get into this line of work? Because I'm, you know, like I'm writing these questions and I'm picturing you like trotting to your sixth grade career day fair or whatever at school, and being like, <laughs> I'm going to be a sex educator. You know, like how and what what was your parents' reaction when you? I mean, presumably by now they do know what you do, right? Oh, yeah. They, so. they have known what I do because I've been doing this. Uh, so I started when I was 18, my very first semester in college. I, I did not. Like if you asked me in the sixth grade what I was going to be, uh, I would have said uh, an English teacher. And the answer would have stayed English teacher until my 12th grade advanced placement English class uh, when my English teacher was so bad, I decided, oh, shit, I don't want to be an English teacher. Uh, but uh, I knew I was a nerd, so when I got to college, uh, I knew that I needed some sort of like volunteer work on my resume to look like a good candidate for grad school. Knew I was going to grad school. No idea for what. But this guy on my floor was pre-med, and he said, hey, come be a peer health educator with me. And I was like, I like health. Why not? So I applied and I got accepted and I got trained to go into residence halls to talk about all sorts of health topics like stress and relationships and communication and nutrition, physical activity, and also sex, condoms, contraception, and consent, essentially. And while I was getting my, de my degrees in psychology with minors in cognitive science and philosophy, and I actually use it all the time. I love the brain stuff. But the work I was doing academically couldn't make me like who I am as a person, the way my work as a fledgling little sex educator made me like who I am. I could see in the moment how this really basic sex education was changing people's lives right in front of me. Um, so that's the path I chose. Oh, and my parents. Uh, so my um, mostly my parents don't ask me about my work itself. Uh, there was one time when my mother said, Emily, please don't talk about work at the dinner table. <laughs> we get told that They're too, otherwise supportive. Yeah. 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 It's usually about cow sex, I think, and not 
humans. But, but same, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've talked general. before about there are times for me when it's about other animals. Yeah, we've talked before about how semen is a is a semi regular dinner table conversation in some farm families, but in a in a different sense. Yeah. So this is why I'm gonna we don't go out for supper. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm gonna ask a few questions about the stress side because as much as they, oh yeah, you know, like they aren't linked they're so they are so much linked both both of these (laughs) these topics obviously I mean one without the other or you know preferably you could have more of one without the other so in your book you talk about completing the stress response cycle in the book burnout and the one thing that I mean it's so early in the book and yet it was mind-blowing to me and shouldn't be but it talk you talk about how you have to complete the stress response cycle. And that doesn't mean removing the stressors from your life. Because I mean, obviously, they're right. most of them aren't going away, right? I mean, for farmers, like the weather is going to do what it's going to do. World markets, livestock as parents, our kids are not leaving anytime soon. And even if they leave the house, we're still thinking about them. So can you talk about what it means to complete the stress response cycle, even when our stressors are still right there in front of us? Yes, it's it's both a good news and a bad news situation. Yeah. So, uh, so the stress response cycle is the complete beginning, middle, end of what we're used to thinking about as the fight or flight response, right? Like we all know that uh, when a threat is present, your body will flood with adrenaline and a lot of other chemicals. It will activate like an increase in your heart rate and an increase in your blood pressure, and it'll slow down your digestion and slow down your reproductive system and slow down every other organ system. Your uh, Even your central nervous system, like your cognition changes because your attention gets focused on solving that one problem until that problem goes away and in the environment where we evolved most of our stressors that activated this physiological process you know had sharp teeth and can run 30 miles an hour and there's only really just one thing that you do when you're being chased by something like that and that is you run and it's easy to imagine that escaping the predator is what completes the stress response cycle that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's the activation, there's all the chemistry that motivates you to engage in some behavior or other, and then there's the relaxation response, which happens when you complete the stress response cycle. But it is not escaping the predator that completes the stress response cycle. It is, in this case, the running itself that does it. So nowadays, we are it's pretty rare that we get chased by something with sharp teeth that can run 30 miles an hour. Like, it's not usually our stress. Our stressors now are our kids and all the things you were saying and the weather and the markets and the global political climate and our family and employers and commutes and traffic and, like, money and, like, all that stuff. Even though those are really different kinds of stressors, our physiological stress response is very similar. So when you're being stressed out, not by being chased by a lion, but instead by um, a drought, what do you do? You got pretty much the same chemistry. So you can't actually just make it rain. But you can deal with the stress that's happening in your body. And physical activity is the, you know, when people say exercise is good for you. It is. Exercise is good for you if it's available to you. I highly recommend it. And this is why. It's because it communicates to your body 
that you have escaped the stressor, whether or not you actually have escaped the stressor. So the, the good news here is that you can do something, and I'll talk about many other strategies for completing the stress response cycle if physical activity is not for you. I am a natural exerciser. I have always had the experience where I know if I just put on my shoes at the other end of the run or the cycling or the rock climbing, I'm going to feel so much better. If I could just put on my shoes and go do it, I'm going to feel great. Uh, I have an identical twin sister, the co-author of Burnout, who has literally never had that experience and thought I was lying <laughs> when I described it. She is not a natural exerciser. So if you're not a person for whom exercise is something that's your preferred thing or even available to you, Amelia is now um, disabled by COVID. She has uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and a variety of other energy sort of metabolic issues where like exercise will only make her sicker. Um, so the good news is that you can complete the stress response cycle even if the problem still exists. It also means that your stress might continue even after you have solved the problem. So like you're a grown up and you have a very adult rational conversation with, you know, your romantic partner about the dishes and when they're going to be done and like you're like being very reasonable and calm and a grown up. You're talking to your kids and you're like, you need to put your shoes on. We're leaving in five minutes. I need to put your shoes on. Two minutes to go. It's time to put your shoes on. I need you to put your shoes on in the next three minutes. I'm going to count to three and you're going to put your shoes on. Like you're being so calm and rational and inside your chemistry is doing the thing it does when you are being threatened for your life and your body kind of wants to go Rah! right yeah. does that does that make sense yeah that sounds familiar so even though you have dealt with the stress your child puts on their shoes your partner does the dishes woo your body is still in that escalated state and look what happens to your body when you stay in that escalated state your heart rate stays increased. Your blood pressure stays increased. Your digestive system stays slowed down. Your reproductive system stays slowed down. So just take one organ system. Um, your cardiovascular system, your blood pressure increases, which creates the blood vessels are designed to mostly deal with like a steady trickling stream of blood flow um, with the stress response. It's like a, a fire hose. And it's only going to last like 15 minutes in the way that it's evolved to work. And then your relaxation response kicks in, your blood flow returns to normal, and your blood vessels have a chance to repair themselves from the damage that got done by that high blood pressure. But if your blood pressure stays elevated for a long time, not only does it keep getting damaged, but also your immune system, yet another organ system, doesn't kick on fully because it too is suppressed during the fight or flight response. Um, so... You're in increasing the damage done to your blood vessels. You're reducing your immune system's responsibility, its ability to heal that damage. And so over time, just the stress itself causes heart disease. It's just stress, but it's a cause of disease, which is how just stress is more likely to cause us disease and even death than many of the things that cause the stress itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. So you talked about, you know, physical activity is obviously one of the ideal options. But I'm thinking of, you know, like people who are working in physical jobs all day, you know, some of our farming listeners who 
it right. feels like all day is physical work and that actually is the stress. So can you talk about some of those other options? Like you said, for people with sure. physical oh, disabilities. Oh, there's so many. Or, there's yeah. so many. Yep. Yes. Yeah. So if, if for any reason you're like, I'm not going to exercise my stress away. Cool. I get it. <laughs> I actually have a, a balance disorder that's degenerative. The older I get, the worse it gets and the less physical activity becomes available to me. So I really rely on these other ones now. Um, one is sleep. And that's, I've just started with a really complicated one. Yeah. Sounds, sounds so I mean, easy, right? Just sleep. Yeah. Yeah. You guys didn't already know that sleep is really important, did you? No, like, never heard oh that. no, no, yeah, everybody knows that sleep is important, <laughs> and yet so many of us are sleep deprived, and the reason for that, well, partly it has to do with physical limitations. So, for example, I'm in perimenopause now, and one thing that uh, many doctors do not share with you is that once you get to perimenopause and into menopause, your sleep is going to be uh, messed up for a while there just because of the hormones, because of the changes that are happening. Um, but it's not just physical reasons. It's also because I can't, in sociology, they call it the third shift. So there's a first shift where you work a job job, your second shift, which is where you take care of the family and the household. And the third shift, which is the time of night when people are supposed to be sleeping, but some people have more permission to sleep than other people do. Right? Yeah. And... We know that there's going to be social rules about who is more entitled to rest than other people. Amelia and I have, that's my sister, Amelia and I have lost count of the number of women who've told us that they feel guilty for sleeping. And our culture does not reward us for like showing up to a social event. Somebody asks how you are and you're like, you know what? I've been getting seven to nine hours of sleep every night for the last month and I feel great. Their response is not like, high five, go you. It's all... That's so nice for you. Yeah. I have been staying up like baking the cupcakes for Becky's birthday party, but no self-care is really important. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. Like all these messages about self-care and then you take care of yourself and they're like, mm, must be nice. Yeah, it fucking is. So sleep, we know, is complicated, but also... And, and like, we can talk about sleep forever. I literally have an hour-long talk just about sleep. So whatever questions you have, I will be more than happy to answer. But, so, a third strategy. Big old cry. You know how, like, sometimes you're, like, just barely holding it together and then you, like, lock yourself into a space where you can just cry and you let yourself cry for, I don't know, just five, ten minutes and you're it's like you've drained away all the stress and you're like, and you feel better? That's your body completing the stress response cycle. People say crying doesn't solve anything. And those are people who don't know the difference between completing the stress response cycle and dealing with the thing that caused the stress in the first place. No cry. Only under really specific life circumstances does crying deal with a stressor. But what it does is complete the stress response cycle so that your body can recalibrate down to the relaxation response so that you are well enough to deal with whatever it was that activated the stress response in the first place. So that's three. Four, a big old laugh. The, not the like socially posed, polite <laughs> kind of laughter. It's the helpless, belly aching laughter uh, that's like it, you look embarrassing it's usually with other people. 
that sort of like helpless laughter has a lot of the same characteristics as a big old cry where you get to the end of it and you feel physically like, oh, like something really big happened in your body, moved all the way through something and got to the end. All of these things are a practice in like a stressor happened. I, w I felt unsafe in my body. And then physiologically, I transitioned into a place where I felt safe in my body, even if you're not actually safe, because a lot of us live in a world we are where we are never fully safe when we go out into the world. People of color, transgender and non-binary people, people with disabilities, when they go out into the world, they're never fully safe, but they can return to a place of feeling safe in their body, given the opportunity to complete the stress response and especially to do it with in the safety of other people who care for them as much as they care for the people around them. We have, so we're up to four, we've got physical activity, we've got sleep, we've got a big old cry, we've got a big old laugh. Uh, imagination is five, and it's one of my favorites. It's actually the one that really made the difference for Amelia. We wrote the book together because when I wrote Come As You Are, I like traveled all over talking to people, anyone who would listen about the science of sexuality. Um, but people kept coming up to me after these talks I would do and saying, yeah, all that sex science is great, Emily, but that one chapter, chapter four about stress and feelings, that was the one that really changed everything. And I told Amelia and she was like, yeah, no kidding. Remember when you taught me that stuff and it, you know, saved my life, she said twice she said and i was like oh we should write a book about that so amelia's situation right. is that, that seems important yeah it's and i was like then this is this is an important message she uh has a dma a doctor of musical arts in choral conducting from a program where she remains the only woman ever to finish that program because that's just how misogynist classical music training is uh, and in the process of finishing that degree, she was hospitalized twice with, quote unquote, just stress. She had an elevated white blood cell count, but they couldn't find any cause for it. So they told her to go home and just relax. And she was like, why is my body trying to kill me? And I've got a PhD in public health. Like, I felt very bad that she did not already know. Like, so I, I showed up in the way our family knows how to express love by giving her peer-reviewed science about the impact of stress <laughs> on her physical well-being. And uh, she learned, somehow she did not yet know, that stress is, is not just an idea. It's not just, um, like, a, it's not a personal failing. It's a physiological event that happens in your body and has real physiological consequences in your body. And if you accumulate too many incomplete stress response cycles at a high enough intensity, it will uh, activate disease processes. And that's ultimately what it did for her. And she ended up in so much pain, she thought she was going to die lying on the bathroom floor in the hospital. And she began physical activity, I mentioned, like does not is not a thing for her. She doesn't get it. But she was still like, you know, on the elliptical machine five days a week because she's a good girl who does what she is told. So she started integrating imagination into her workout. So instead of like watching TV or reading a magazine, she got on the elliptical machine and visualized herself as Godzilla tromping on the bursar's office and the parking lot and her advisor's office. So she imagined herself into her own stress response and she conquered her enemy and her imagination. And human minds are so powerful 
Well, we already know that the imagination can activate a stress response cycle. Anytime you've experienced a physiological stress response activated in your body just because you were worrying about something, there's nothing bad happening right now, but you can be plenty worried about a bad thing that might happen. We know that the imagination can activate a stress response. The good news is it can also complete a stress response. You just really visualize yourself viscerally so that you can feel it happening in your body, conquering some enemy or other. And this is all really well established in the performance research in both music other arts and in athletics that visualization is a powerful way to help your brain to imagine its way through an emotional response to get all feelings or tunnels you have to get all the way to the end to get to the light right so she could imagine her way through a stress response assisted by light physical activity on the elliptical machine and that got her to the end so number five is imagination Number six goes right with that. That is creative self-expression. If a therapist has ever told you to journal, um, you may I, I have had therapists tell me to journal. Do they mean that the construction of sentences is inherently like good for your emotional health? No, they're providing an opportunity to take all those activated emotions that are inside you, move all the way through them, put them on the paper so that they're not inside your body. They're in a place where they can't do any harm to you or to anyone else. Creative self-expression is about taking all that stuff and putting it into something that is meaningful for you. It's writing for me. Uh, for Amelia, it was music for a long time. Then she became a professional musician and it had to become something else. Um, so she turned it into like cooking and writing and other forms of creative self-expression. For some people, it's going to be sculpture. For some people, it's going to be uh, performance arts. So whatever your thing is that you're like, I know, like I can sit down, I can knit my booties of rage and I will have made something and gotten the rage out of my body. Creative self-expression. Does that make sense? That does. I think, and for that one, I like how you mentioned that once music became her job, that couldn't be her creative self-expression anymore. We have to stop that idea of, oh, I can make this thing and it helps me de-stress. So now I'll start selling it or right, <laughs> creating yeah. a side hustle or turning it into something else, right? It Amelia's can just key be tip is that like is. to prevent yeah. yourself from taking something you really love doing and turning it into a side hustle, choose a form of creative self-expression that you are not very good at. <laughs> yeah. Or just make one huge scarf. It just yeah, it never you, ends. Yeah, you will never be good enough at it to be able to make any kind of money. So you just – Amelia uh, also does horseback riding. She will Mm -hmm. never be any good at it. Like, she will never be able to compete. She will never be able to participate in a group of people doing it. But it's physical activity. It's it's also connection, which is, like, maybe the biggest strategy for completing the stress response cycle. Because remember, all of these are about shifting your body into a state where it feels that you have returned to a place of safety inside your own body. And connection with a loving presence is... Another, like these humans are spectacularly social as a species. For some people, connection really does mean connection with other people, people who listen to the podcast so that they can have that sense of connection with other people who are similar to them, who understand the things they are going through. That connection is helping them to return to a place of safety inside their body. Uh, the research suggests something like a 30 second hug. 
it's it's not about the 30 seconds, but it is about hugging for a duration that would be potentially very awkward if you don't really like and trust the person that you are hugging, right? And that's the point. Susanna Iacenza, the sex therapist, calls it hugging until relaxed, where you just press your body against the other person and breathe with them until you feel the shift in your body. That's one way that connection can help to ground your body in an experience of feeling safety. When I'm with this person, I am so safe that I have come home. But there's also connection with animals. So as much as I adore my husband, I'm very lucky. He's a wonderful, wonderful human being. There are times when like the purity of my dog's joy at seeing me when I come home just cannot be matched by anything a human can express. Their faces all soft and glowing and their tails wagging. That sense of joy it just like connects with me and makes me feel like I have come home in a way that connecting with any human can't match. For Amelia, horseback riding is like that. When you go see the same horse every week and you groom it and you ride the horse and it just feels like you're connecting. And she's physically connecting, trying to tune her body into the same rhythm as the horse. That experience is really similar to her. Her musical specialty, she's a choral conductor. And when she conducts, she tries to tune her body to the same rhythm as her choir. And that experience of connection, not only is it good for her in terms of feeling like she's grounded in a sense of safety in her own body, it also brings her a sense of meaning and purpose, which music doesn't have for me, but it does for her. Meaning and purpose is a, like a whole other chapter in Burnout. Um, but so connection with humans, connection with mammals, connection with landscapes. For me, it's the beach. For some people, it's the mountains or the desert or a lake or the forest. People have landscapes where when they go to that place, their body resonates with it. And it just feels whole and connected and like, ah. Oh. I have come to a place of safety because I am in this kind of earthscape. Um, and finally, there's connection with the divine. Many people's experience of their spirituality is being held in a loving family. And that connection, when it's happening in your brain, when you experience it, it is real. It is happening um, and can bring up in the same way that animals can have a sort of more pure and uncomplicated sense of safety and connection. Our connection with the divine can have that more pure, uncomplicated, simple sense of safety of being held in a divine family. So connection. Yeah. I had a question about connection and the, the, uh, and co-regulation at the same time, because mm -hmm. you talk in your book about co-regulating. And I live with my four kids and my husband. And one of the things that is one of my stressors is taking on the emotions of other people and how they're feeling. And then, you know, inevitably how that makes me feel if they're not feeling great. And so that kind of ends up making me feel like I want to connect less almost yeah. like it, it makes me feel like I want to pull away from them so how do how do I satisfy my internal need for connection when what I actually end up feeling like is I want to turn away from those feelings because it makes me feel worse yes this uh brings up one of my favorite messages in the book which is that wellness is not a state of being 
It is not the state of being connected or not connected. It is not a state of mind. It is a state of action. Wellness is the freedom to oscillate through the cycles inherent in living in a mammalian body. We are not designed to like rest all the time or to work all the time. We're built to oscillate from rest into activity, back to rest and back to activity. We're not built to stay in a state of like always being full. We're designed to eat and then digest and then eat and then digest. And we're designed to oscillate into connection and back out to autonomy, back into connection and back out to autonomy. And just as each of us has different appetites for all those other things, different sleep needs, different metabolic food needs, different kinds of bodies. We all have a different need for connection and a different need for autonomy. Introverts are the people whose natural appetite for connection is smaller. It uses up energy for them to be in connection with people and they gain energy being autonomous, being alone. And extroverts are the people who gain energy being with people and then drain energy being alone. But everybody needs both. Amelia and I are not just extrovert, we're not, are not just introverts, we are both strong introverts. We are also on the spectrum. So our connection needs are really out of balance from how most people relate to the idea of connection. And yet even we, writing this book, could not help coming to the conclusion that connection is actually, it's, it's the most important thing, is the cure for burnout is not self-care, it is all of us caring for each other. And one of the ways that we care for each other is by taking up slack when someone we care about really needs some time on their own. So, Emily, I'm going to jump in here. I don't know if you actually um, got a chance to read the outline of questions or if you're psychic or if we're just like. I did read it. Somehow. <laughs> yeah. Um, as someone who is also a neurodivergent introvert, how do we. I don't want to say make myself, but how do I prime myself to want to connect with others? Because it is so much work. Yeah. And I, uh, so it's, it is very much like the responsive desire that you talk about that mm -hmm. once I am connecting with people, I enjoy it and I feel very fulfilled by it. Ge generally, depending. Yeah, generally. I've gotten rid of basically <laughs> anyone I don't like in my life. That's um, a really healthy you know, move. I work from home and I'm a neurodivergent introvert, so I just don't deal with people I don't like. Yeah. Easy. Um, but how do I get myself in the headspace to want to connect with people? Because it is, it's so much work and it's so much planning and it's, uh, and then a lot of times you have to leave the house, which yeah. is, bleh, you know, and it's. I have to say, really the hard. way Amelia and I finally. Uh, we were not diagnosed until 2021. Um, and the thing that motivated us to be like, you know what, actually, there might be something going on here and we should probably go ahead and get evaluated was the fact that the pandemic was hitting us really differently than how it was hitting pretty much everyone else we knew. We were like, this is amazing. I just want to stay home by myself. Glad that wasn't just me because yeah. same. It was like, I feel really horrible for all the people who are getting sick and all these horrible things are happening to them and it is really inconvenient but yeah. this is pretty awesome <laughs> yeah they want us to stay home and make sourdough done like all right sounds good to me yeah so the motivation so i actually use this metaphor i learned from a sex therapist named christine hyde 
um, when client couples will come to her where one partner is interested in sex and the other one is like, ah, I'm really struggling with desire. Um, and she puts it this way. Imagine that your best friend invites you to a party. You say yes because it's your best friend and it's a party. And then as the date approaches, you're like, there's going to be all this traffic. We're going to have to find childcare. Am I going to want to put on party clothes at the end of a long week? Am I going to want to leave the house? <sighs> but you know what? You said you would go. So you put on your party clothes and you show up to the party. And generally what happens is you have a pretty good time. You benefit the way you want to benefit from the experience of going and being with people you genuinely care about. Even for neurodivergent people, generally, if it's somebody you care enough about to like follow through and show up. Uh, my sister has this happen when, when her kids were still in high school and junior high. Um, she's the mother of three stepchildren who are all now in their 20s. But when they were in junior high, she would show up. She's a professional musician and she would go to their like high school musical. Like it's physically painful for her to sit through a high school musical. <laughs> and she would like check off each number on the program as it finished, counting down to the end. But she was always, even though it was difficult, she wanted to be there for the kids. She genuinely loved seeing them in the show. And she could always honestly say, when the kids asked, so what did you think? How was it? She can say, I loved seeing you in it. I thought you were great. So if you understand, like, what am I, what is it that I'm looking to get out of this experience? You know that it's not necessarily to have a good time. Uh. And I'm saying this to other neurodivergent people with social differences, not to the neurotypical people who are like, but I have a great time. I love seeing all the kids in sta on stage and I love going to a party. Like there's a lot of us out there who are like, no, I get home and I just feel exhausted. But you stay focused on what's meaningful about that experience for you. We're back at chapter three. Like what is the meaning of this? What does this contribute to your life and your purpose on earth? That's the way I do it. Well, and I, I think this is such an interesting conversation getting into the, the sex side of your work, because I feel like there's this, obviously consent is a tremendously, tremendously important thing. Yeah. But I feel like there's this, especially for those of us who I think weren't really raised with consent as being as big a thing as I think a lot of us are raising our kids to be now, that if we're not super enthusiastic about sex going into it that it's the same as not consenting where i mean i might not be excited to go to that party but i showed up willingly and it's you know it's not like i was kidnapped right um, and so here's my question you show up to the party, and this is how christine hyde uses the analogy with her clients like do you have a good time at the party if you had a good time at the party you were doing it right and my thing is, if you're not having a good time at the party, there is no amount of being really excited about going to parties that would make that party worth going to. So the, the, the uh, thing for me is to forget entirely about desire and how enthusiastic you are about going to the party. Sometimes you're like, fine, I will. It's like how I feel about exercise. I'm going to put on my shoes because I know if I just put on my shoes and I go out the door, I'm going to be so glad that I did. If you put on your party clothes, 
and you have show up. You put your butt in this in terms of sex. You put your body in the bed. You let your skin touch your partner's skin. If it feels good, if you enjoy yourself, you get to the end and you're like, that was a good idea. I'm really glad we did that. You were doing it right. The short way to say this is pleasure is the measure. Pleasure is the measure of sexual well-being, not how often you do it or who with or in what positions or how horny you are or even how many orgasms you have. It's whether or not you like the sex that you are having. If you are having fun, you are doing it right. So... What about, I'm just going to like lay my whole personal history just right out on the table. Great. I love um, that. I, funny story. When I told my husband that we were doing this show and I was like, you know, I would like to know where your boundaries are about how much of our sex life I talk yeah. about in front of all these people. He somehow took that to mean that I thought that he should talk to Arlene's husband about <laughs> what our sexual and come boundaries to a mutual were. understanding like, somehow. <laughs> Yeah, like, no. Are they sex partners? No, I, I don't need you to talk to Hugh about our sex life. <laughs> Please don't. They've never even met in person. Oh, so no, it's not as yeah, far as I know. boundary, done. Um, so for my husband and I, we started trying for a baby, like, on our wedding night, basically. Like, we weren't really preventing for a month or so before that, but, you know. Mm-hmm. Now we're married and we're good Midwesterners and we're adults and we can do this. And and then four years of fertility treatments, which is basically four years of people saying, give us all your money and do really embarrassing, bizarre, physically and emotionally painful things while we tell you to relax because it's your own fault God, that you're yes. not getting pregnant because you're not relaxed. Ugh. And... Then miraculously having two babies in the space of 16 months in high-risk, very physically difficult pregnancies, Mm. where do I even start with ever wanting to have sex with ever again? Because I, you know, and I've had this conversation with my husband, but like, you know, it's not you, it's me is a No, you've been traumatized. (laughs) But Fuck. Yeah. What I love is that you're asking the question the right way. Where do I even ever start? Where do I start? Because especially since the pandemic, I've been getting this question of like, how am I supposed to want to have sex with my partner when I'm so angry about so many things? How am I supposed to want sex when like basically the whole world is on fire? Yes. And the answer is you are not supposed to want sex under any circumstances. You explore where pleasure is and you follow it so you begin with sex off the table like sex is not going to happen anytime in the foreseeable future but you can touch each other you can hug and kiss and get to know each other's skin you can independently reconnect with your own body don't start with your sexual or reproductive anatomy start with every other part of your body because if you have been the birth parent to children it's not just there have been physical changes it's the whole meaning of your body has altered so your relationship with every part of your body is brand new your relationship with your partner is brand new. You are starting entirely from scratch with a new body and a new relationship. So it makes sense that it would be difficult. It would be particularly difficult because you spent so long with the fertility treatments and trying are 
For people who are intergamete reproducers, where one of you's got sperm and one of you's got eggs, and the expectation is you're going to have sex by getting the sperm to the eggs via intercourse, like it just can be so destructive to a sexual erotic connection. So part of it is rebuilding your relationship with your body, beginning from scratch with your relationship with your partner, and releasing, remembering that there is actually other reasons to have sex besides having babies, and that is pleasure and connection. Um, there's an, So one of the things that I ask people is, what is it that you want when you want sex? What is it that you like? When you like sex, these are important questions that I think people should spend a bunch of time with. Um, and there's sort of four big categories of answers. The first is connection. So finding a way to there are lots of other ways to connect with people who really matter to you. Um, and but sex is one of them. For some people, sex is a really important mode of connection. I don't know if it's important for you, but it is one and it might be important for your partner. So that's one thing. A second thing is they want the pleasure of it. Um, and when sex has been as stressful, as exhausting, as sort of existentially threatening as it has been when you've been through so much of a fertility process. And people talk to me about this all the time. Doctors are always like, how do I make sure my partner, my, my patients still have a, a decent sexual connection after they get through this process? Um, so it's very common. Um, it might be difficult to access pleasure through your body that way. And it just takes practice, basically, um, it's like a phobia. Tell me if this makes sense, right? So you get in a car accident and now every time you approach a car, your body's stress response activates and you have to go through a process of graded exposure where you get, you think about cars and you practice relaxing and you stand next to a car and you practice relaxing and you sit in a car and you practice relaxing and you gradually get closer and closer to the experience of driving while training your body to be relaxed in that new context. You do the same thing with sex. You like lie in bed with your partner fully closed and allow your body to relax. You do breathing exercises, you practice meditation, whatever it takes for your body to be in a relaxed state while also physically present and in contact with another person. You practice relaxation while you are touching different parts of your own body. You practice being relaxed while you are skin to skin with another person. You practice being relaxed while you are alone and unclothed. You practice in the shower or in the bath practice being with your own body and experiencing sensations while still being relaxed and not stressed out. And gradually from there, if you can be calm, relaxed, peaceful with your body and its sensations, then you begin exploring where the pleasure is and letting it come out from hiding because it's been hiding because it's been associated with stress for so long. Does any of that make sense? Well, I'm just over here trying not to cry because <laughs> I feel like I have become, it's become so ingrained that now when I even, I don't want to say when I even see my husband, but when there's any amount of contact, my brain just goes straight to, oh, for nope. fucks, I'm not having sex with, no. Yeah. You know, and so I skip everything that should be in between there. And I feel like for me, the Honestly, the biggest struggle of fertility treatments was the anger. Because yeah. as women, we are not allowed to be angry. 
And his mother's, like, the one thing you cannot do is be angry. And especially if you know it's irrational and you're getting so angry with friends because they look at their husband and they got knocked up in the backseat of the car, you know, and, like, I'm happy for them. It's not like they're having a baby meant that I couldn't. But for fuck's sake, I've never felt rage like trying to have a baby gave me. Yeah. I'm going to send you the new book. It's not done yet, but I'm going to send it to you. Thank you. Because there's this whole section on rage. (laughs) Oh, my (laughs) God. So it's actually part of what I call the emotional floor plan. Rage is one of the primary process emotions. It's one of the fundamental emotional spaces in our brains. And the actual like biological motivation of rage is to move toward and destroy something that is in our way. When we hate, it's because something is in our way. We're trying to get to something and we can't. And so we're in that state of like attacking the thing that is in our way. Does that make sense? Yep. And we were actually talking on our social media the other day about what the word would be for the anger that comes from being afraid. And finally just went for fangry, you know, like hangry, because it's... Yeah. I'm on a medication You're angry at your fear. Yeah, for dysautonomia, because my body just cannot fucking even anymore. Just cannot even. And so it blocks my adrenaline response. So I... I don't feel the fear the same way, but I sure get the anger that comes after it. And that's, it's really shocking when it happens because there's no So let me add to that the third major, uh, what I call them pleasure adverse spaces, but they're the difficult emotions that we are motivated to avoid. One of them is rage. One of them is fear. And the third one is panic grief, which is a technical approach to thinking about loneliness. This comes from when, so so love is a biological drive. We require connection uh, to stay alive. Even people like us who are on the spectrum, we require some connection in order to stay alive. And you know how infants um, wail to, and they need to be picked up and held? The babies will die just of loneliness. And as adults, it's no longer true that uh, our survival depends on our adult caregivers. But our bodies don't know that. Our bodies are pretty sure that if we don't get connection with our attachment object, that we're going to die. They call it heartbreak for a reason. So underneath all of that um, fear and all of the anger, and like, let me just add that there's an injustice where your rage is grounded, like a real unfairness happened to you. And so rage makes perfect sense. And also the process of trying to bring a child into the world, it sounds like, was this major cause of emotional separation between you and the person you picked to spend your life with. So I hear isolation in that, like buried underneath the rage at the fear is the despair of like an infant who's been crying and their adult caregiver hasn't come and hasn't come and their attachment object isn't there. And so they switch from the panic of, I need some help. I need some help. I need some help to no one is ever going to come to help me. Are you going to bill me for this therapy session? (laughs) 
because <laughs> just an educator. I, I feel like I'm gonna get a bill in the mail for like seven hundred dollars or something. I'm like shit, should have should have asked if this was covered by insurance. Someday I'm um, gonna finish writing this book, and it'll only be like twenty bucks. Cool, cool. And yes, that was me just totally deflecting. Um, <laughs> no, I get it. And, I make jokes too. My therapist and, has this like polite laugh that she does when I make a joke about something because she knows when mm-hmm. I make the jokes. It's because uh, something has gotten really close to the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the thing that people ought to know about those of us who make jokes about things. Is right. The harder we're joking about it, the closer you are to whatever the actual problem is. Right. Um, yeah. I feel like this whole process of becoming a parent for me changed my fundamental understanding of my own personality so much and I just haven't Mm. had time to catch up and it's wow it's a whole thing yeah yeah it's a whole thing we're just gonna (laughs) leave it there all of that and it it does like it takes so much time and the irony is that you are now much busier caring for others than you ever have been before at the same time that you need to be taking more time to reflect and understand yourself I will say that my my big driver for starting the podcast was a a fear of my own mortality. And my big drive for having you on was to thank you for giving us concrete steps to deal with this shit. Because being put into this and then being told to to go to therapy, which I finally quit with the blessing of my therapist because I logically I've therapied my way through everything, but my, my body has not caught up and then, you know, take a bubble bath and light some candles and meditate. (laughs) And why are you still angry? You took a bubble bath. Like, cool. Yeah. You gotta, do you, do you have skills in place for what you do when to process the rage each day? (laughs) No. Okay. Um, no but I'm working on it yeah and that's that's what I can do it's a huge step that you recognize that you have rage you know what it feels like in your body like you can recognize oh here's how I know that rage is the thing that's happening right now as opposed to fear or as opposed to loneliness uh that's a great first step the next thing is understanding what pushes you into that emotional space and how you pull yourself or how someone can help pull you out of that space those are those are sort of the three pieces of it what does it feel like when i'm there how what got me into here and how do i get out that's how you you know your feelings are tunnels you have to go all the way through the darkness to get to the light at the end and can you hear my cat on the desk Yes. Speaking of cats and looking at the cat who started this whole problem last night. No, not the whole problem. Turning what do we do? You can see her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yellow cats. They're always a problem. Um, when you think you're on top of the tunnel, just kind of like having a stroll and then it collapses underneath you and you're just right back in the middle. Because what I find yeah. for myself is that I'll be going along just everything is fine. Every, you know, everything is fine. And then last night, like, the cat clawed me in the face. It's not his fault. He's He's dumb. You know, whatever. But I am incontrollably sobbing. Like, you know, my entire family has just been run over by a garbage truck or something. You know, like, I'm just losing my mind over the cat scratching my face, which, whatever. So how do we... 
how do we deal with that? Because yeah, that's but the cry oof. the crying was completing the stress here. response cycle, right? Am I getting it right yes. here? Was the crying yeah, <laughs> the crying, the crying is, good. is good for you? The cry when you're crying to that intensity from something that in and of itself is not that serious, you know that you're not actually crying about the cat, right? You're crying just because you have all of this rage inside you and it wants to get out. And it's like the cat created this tiny little channel for the rage to come out of. And it just like opened the little space for the rage to start coming out. It's not that it's actually rage about the cat. It's just the generic rage that you have inside you that so many of us have inside us, especially like if as raised as girls, we're taught that anger is not allowed. You don't even have any anger. And by the time you notice and acknowledge that you do have rage, you've got this backstock. Like your body is just like very politely, hang on, she pushed a button. <laughs> At least she didn't hit the mute button. Oh my God, cat! Can I just get up and like give her some food? Because yeah, yes, absolutely. I'll be right back. I know what cats are like. <laughs> sorry about that. Okay. No, absolutely. So the gift of our amazing human brains is they will just like hold on to our incomplete stress responses indefinitely. So a lot of us are walking around with just decades of incomplete stress response cycles that are no longer differentiated into like, oh, this is a fear response. This is an anger response. It's just stress. It's just this big glob of undifferentiated negative emotion in our bodies. Um, for a lot of people, those will set up camp in a particular organ system. For me, it's musculoskeletal and it shows up as lower back pain. For Amelia, it's generally her digestive system or her reproductive system. So it shows up in people's bodies in different ways, but our bodies will just hold on to it for us for a really long time until we gradually learn the skill of completing stress response cycles, purging that stuff from our bodies so that our body can recalibrate itself. And it actually really does help to have a supportive other person there with us when we need it. So if, if I were the one giving advice and I'm not, I don't want to really do advice. I'm not good at it because, um, like, I can't project myself into other people's lives very accurately. I don't have kids. I don't know. But uh, a combination of the people you are already really close friends with who can stay calm with you while you are in distress and maybe not a talk therapist, but um, – a somatosensory therapist like somatic experiencing or somatosensory therapy where your body is actively involved it doesn't even have to be therapy it can just be yoga yoga and basically moving your body are more evident evidence-based treatments for depression for uh moderate depression than any medication how you we feeling, Katie? You, are we all just waiting for somebody else? Oh, to am say I here? <laughs> I think yes. I think we're all just having a pause. Yeah, <laughs> we're just having a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you think it's going to be about relationships? You think it's going to be about like you know how to like wear sexy underwear or whatever? No, it's about how to like <laughs> cope with the fact that our bodies are full of difficult feelings. Being a human is incredibly difficult. We both desperately need to be connected with each other, and we both desperately need to be separated from each other. <laughs> and and we, all of that, we, like, that is not a contradiction. We just, we need to oscillate. We need the freedom to move through all of these cycles. 
could you not just make the next book about buying sexy underwear and taking bubble baths so we can stop having all these feelings and dealing with all this <laughs> yeah. shit? Just like, I'm going to start with the, the underwear. <laughs> it's yeah. just about the underwear. It has nothing to do with how you feel about your body. Yeah, that's right. Oh my god, she wants us to do yoga and like therapy and embrace our feelings and get I don't want you to. Here's how I feel about yoga. Fucking yoga. Like it's so goddamn good for you. Like it's it's just it's it's just so it's that pesky science, right? It's the science. Stupid evidence based interventions. Stupid science, yeah. Yoga and going for walks outside. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to I want to talk about the science because the one thing you talk about a lot in Come As You Are is that a lot of things are normal. Like there's no like genitals don't have to look a certain way. Sex is not the same for anyone, all that kind of stuff. Yes. And yet the one thing you bring up a lot about not being normal is that sex should not be painful. Right. And yet so often after people have children, especially what medical providers sometimes tell us or other people will tell us or media will tell us is that a certain amount of pain is normal and you just have to deal with it or get through it or you're not relaxed enough or, you know, the blame comes back have on the person who bore the children. Exactly. Like we started off with a bit of lube and a glass of wine and it'll be fine. So talk to us about the fact that pain is not normal, yeah. because I don't think we should accept that. It's it's one of the very, very... Th- uh, I actually have a definition of normal that is the main one I use now. Are you ready? Normal sex is sex between peers or among peers where everyone involved is glad to be there, free to leave with no unwanted consequences, no physical consequences, and also no emotional consequences, no emotional blackmail, no, oh, come on, no guilt. Free to leave with no unwanted consequences, and there's no unwanted pain. If it's wanted pain, if you are having clothespins attached to your nipples and you love it, if you're having your hair pulled and you love it, great do you. But if you're experiencing pain and you don't want it, that is outside my definition of normal sex. Uh, There are a wide variety of effective evidence-based interventions for the many different types of pain people can experience with sex. Uh, Many of them are offered by pelvic floor physical therapists, uh, which is a great starting point. Assume if you're having genital pain in particular, especially if it's after you've given birth or had some other like major trauma to your genitals, that... uh, Physical therapy is your first line of intervention, and then you go from there. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it's the idea that it's normal for sex to hurt, especially if you were raised with an it's a girl kind of body. You were taught that it's your punishment to bear pain and suffering. We just assume that some degree of discomfort is normal. And when I was teaching, I had a student uh, with... A mobility disability. Uh, she had chronic inhibitory tone of her pelvic floor muscle, which is often uh, described with the word vaginismus. Um, and she was told by her doctors that there was no treatment for it. <laughs> and I don't know if there's something about her condition that made her vaginismus not at all treatable, but I feel very confident that she, if, if she were a 19-year-old boy with genital pain who... Uh, couldn't have sex because of the pain uh, that she would not have been dismissed and told it was just untreatable. Yeah, pretty likely. It's the patriarchy is the reason why we believe pain is normal. And I'm here to 
I'm, I'm not here for the patriarchy. I'm here for us to live in a world where women are not taught that their bodies are the enemy and a source of suffering, but instead our bodies are a gift and are a potential source of great pleasure, all the pleasure that we choose to participate in that our body can experience. Yes, thank you. And that's the message we circling, need. Yes, circling back to the clothespins. Um, a lot of us live <laughs> now. In, I'm curious <laughs> in more conservative rural areas. So how? Oh, that's balance... where you're going. I thought I, you were going to cross your husband's boundary. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, how do we balance? being sex positive and being advocates, not only for our own children, but for, I don't want to say for other people's children, because that sounds a lot like, I'm going to throw condoms at your kid, no matter what your personal beliefs are. Um, yeah, how do we if somebody's personal beliefs are not that you should throw ed. condoms at their kid, you should uh, just hide the pockets away with the kid's consent in their backpack? Yeah, sounds good. That's the solution. So how do we advocate <laughs> for things like sex ed that's actually useful? Um without becoming nose people. Yeah, so I mean, here's my definition areas, of sex we have positive. Those people. Yeah. So sex positivity for me just means that everybody gets to choose how and when they are touched and everybody gets to choose how they feel about their own body. Just it's, you know, bodily autonomy is what sex positivity is. It is not even a little bit radical. It is not saying that all sex is positive. That is demonstrably, obviously untrue. It's saying that everybody should get to choose. Everybody deserves the information they need to make choices for themselves. And I think advocating for that is not complicated, except that a lot of people disagree that everybody should be free to choose how and when they are touched. Right? Um yeah, I'm wondering. Too and let's how talk we... about what it means to have sex education that is useful. Like, what is sex education for young people supposed to do? Uh, let's say prevent unintended or unwanted pregnancies, prevent the spread of STIs. Those are two pretty good goals, right? Um, if you wanted to, we could even add the goal. This is one of my favorite pieces of jargon. Delay sexual debut. For some people, that's an important outcome. Uh increasing the age at which people have their first sexual experiences. If you want to do any of those three things, you want to give people as comprehensive a sex education as you can get. Talking about all the various forms of contraception, all the various sexual identities and gender identities and sexual orientations. And you want to talk about communication skills. You want to do uh, values exercises where people think about what's important to them. Communication exercises where we talk about who is allowed to say yes and no to what, what pleasure means. Teach people what pleasure feels like in their own body so they can recognize it. If someone ever says to them, does that feel good? That's what useful sex education does. And there are absolute, like, I, I think most people would be like, yes, let's prevent STIs, let's prevent unwanted pregnancies, uh, and, but, Let's not do it by giving people any information. Let's just rely on them making the choices that we would want them to make without giving them any of the tools they need to make those decisions. I have a lot of big opinions about this, obviously. 
Well, I'll just, say, I mean, just because yeah. it's like what I do for a living. But the thing is, we know exactly how to achieve these goals of reducing pregnancies when they're not wanted. We know how to prevent STIs. We have known for 50 years. We do not lack the knowledge. We lack the political will. So what we need is really for moderate people who are like, I would prefer that my child not get pregnant before they really want to. And I would prefer that my child not have a sexually transmitted infection to be like, actually, it's completely fine with me if you talk about gay kids and, and like gay people in history and trans people in history. Because if that's what it takes to help my kid feel comfortable with themselves and able to say no to the things that they do not want and yes to the things that are right for them because I'm raising my child to be aware of their own personal personal values to protect and defend their own values. And I trust that given the right information, they're going to make a values aligned choice for themselves when it comes to sexuality, pleasure and reproduction. I feel like too, one of the things we miss so much with sex ed is that we don't teach kids jack shit about how to get pregnant when it is an appropriate thing for them to be doing. You know, no. I mean, I'm of an age where our sex ed was literally, you know, don't touch boys, you'll get pregnant. Don't look at boys, you'll get pregnant. Here's some overhead slides of terrifying, terrifying things yeah. that you will catch if you touch boys. And then, you know, to go to the fertility clinic and to realize that even, you know, I was lucky enough to get more comprehensive sex ed in high school with yeah, sex ed that actually meant something how much i still didn't know about yeah. how babies are made i mean i know how babies yeah. are made but it's a fucking miracle that anybody is ever actually created seriously <laughs> and like it's the and the thing is like like you were saying some people get pregnant literally the first time they have penile vaginal intercourse with ejaculation into a vagina like it just happens the way they scare you about and for other people, it takes years of struggle. Well, no, I know when I got to the clinic and we were talking about it, one of the clinicians was totally without um, violating privacy, was telling me about a couple who came in who had such a poor understanding of how reproduction works that the husband had been ejaculating on his wife's stomach not understanding that that would not ever get her pregnant. And this had been going on long enough that they got referred to the fertility clinic, which generally takes at least a year. So this poor couple had just thought that they were unable to conceive a baby, had gone through all this testing, had gone through all this stress. Wow. Because of shit-tastically bad education. And it just infuriates me. You know, I mean... This process is bad enough if you actually need it. I can't even imagine doing it for that long and then finding out why God. it wasn't working. I, like, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like for each individual in that couple to receive this information and understand how, how, what basic information yeah. they were missing. Like, I hope they were really enraged at a world that had denied them this very basic information about what human sexuality is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The, the I mean, baby making part Iowa. is this it's like not... one really specific thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine what the rest of their education about sexuality had been like. <sighs> if that's, 
you know, and even if you are really conservative, I feel like we owe our kids more information than that. You know, I mean, it, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. I wonder, though, how really conservative parents would feel like if their own children finally got married and wanted to have kids and they found out that their kids did not know about putting a penis inside a vagina and ejaculating there. Yeah. Like how like where would they think, oh, here is the place where they should have learned about it. Like, should they have said those words out loud to their kids before they got married? Should their religious leader have said it? Should it have happened in a high school? Like, where were they supposed to get that information? Yeah. Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Feeling some real rage now. All right. Yeah. 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 So I feel like we could probably. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I feel like we could probably talk for like another hour, but I want to be sensitive to the time that you have for us. So you've already given us a little hint that we wouldn't talk for a full two hours. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So can you give us any other hints about what the book is about that you're working on now? Uh, Actually, it is a book about uh, sustaining a sexual connection in a long-term relationship. Well, which is why I spend so much time talking about rage. (laughs) (laughs) Do we have rage in our long term relationships? I wonder. Yeah, there's a phenomenon known as normal marital hatred. I think the phrase is coined by Terrence Real, which has become really important because like when you look at the Internet, what you see is men and women complaining about their husbands and wives. And the book is inclusive of people of every gender identity in every combination of genders in a relationship. And I don't just mean monogamous mm-hmm. relationships, but straight married monogamous people. Uh, the way they talk about their spouses on the Internet is with uh, infuriated rage and hatred. So I'm trying to like help people in that position understand what their rage is actually about. It's about the patriarchy. Um, and <laughs> hint, hint. how to disentangle it from their erotic connection so that they can stay connected with each other even when difficult things have to be moved through. Mm-hmm. So, so they may actually want to, you know, go to a party sometime. Right. And if you don't yeah. like going to the parties, no wonder you don't want to go. Yeah. yeah. Some of the parties suck. Yes. Emily, I will say, true story, my husband came home the other day to find me reading a book that is no shit titled how not to hate your husband after having kids yeah and i guess maybe my explanation that i don't hate him nearly as much as i'd hate anybody else in this circumstance um (laughs) was that somewhat helpful you know no i don't think (laughs) i think we've been together long enough that he understood what i meant but i don't think it was quite as um comforting as he would have hoped for. But I mean, the circumstances <laughs> that we live in, I'd hate anybody way more than I hate my husband. Yeah. You know, I love you, dear. He listens to the show. So I have to <laughs> As a woman on the spectrum, I can say that my experience of normal marital hatred is not the same as other people's. Like, I didn't understand it at first. And then I thought about the times that my husband used to uh, leave trash, like used food wrappers in the sink. Oh my God. Um, he is also neurodivergent. He's ADHD. And he, he would put the food wrappers there 
with the plan of rinsing them off before he put them in the trash because he didn't want the trash to smell. Fair enough, but he would, you know, get distracted because ADD and he would leave them in the sink. Um, and I, I use this in the book as an example of my experience of normal marital hatred of the kind of rising rage I would feel at finding dirty trash in the sink. Uh, and I told him I was going to put that story in the book and he stopped doing it. So I took it out of the book. So you're saying all we have to do is start writing books about start, the obnoxious like, shit that people do? Tell your partner you're going to tell, you know, hundreds of thousands of people about this thing you do that is mildly annoying. Huh. <laughs> and isn't and maybe... that what the cussing and discussing segment is for, Katie? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, all we right. have a podcast for that. There you go. Yeah. So anyway, so it's a... It's it's how to stay erotically connected, which necessarily means how to stay admiring and trusting of your partner. I mean, well, there's I'm definitely some times that like some good angry hate sex can be a good thing, but I don't really want to spend like the next 40 years. Yeah, there. kind of like, most of the reason why I have a big section on anger is to be like, look, anger is one space, less is another one. There's almost no overlap between hating someone and wanting to have sex with them because hating them is wanting to destroy them because they're in your way and like i don't need to like we all get that you should not use sex as a weapon to destroy another person right like we all get that we all know that like it can be fun to play a game with it but like literally we all know right yeah, yeah. On the regular, no, no, not a, not a good idea. <laughs> I think Emily, it just occurred to me that angry, like angry after fight sex, is like intentional yeah. pain during sex. That like, if it's with someone you like and it's something you kind of enjoy, go for it. But yeah, you don't generally have sex with people you actively hate. Yeah, and make up sex to repair damage to a connection is a really different experience from like i actively right now want to destroy you yeah okay yeah. well <laughs> sorry well, i could that. talk about it forever because i'm so deep in it now yeah no we'll, we'll um, buy the book we're yeah we're on yeah it. so emily my you're cat's very... moving my microphone around i hope it has not affected the sound too much she's <laughs> no, just it's... like right here she's still <laughs> Robin wanting all yep. the attention. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, hi. So I Chip added chirp. one super serious question here at the end. Your hair is currently okay. blue. The last picture I saw of your sister, I think her hair was purple. Purple. Yep. How often do you guys accidentally dye your hair the same color? Or are you like pretty consistent with blue and purple? So we do it ourselves. So there have been times when, you know, you like, in order to get blue hair, you actually have to put some purple in there to tone down the yellow that, <laughs> my cat, that uh, the yellow that <laughs> still is in your hair. When I, even if I bleach my hair twice, there's still a lot of yellow left. Um, and I have to add purple to the color in order to like tone down that yellow. Otherwise it looks green. And I have missed the balance. And sometimes my hair has showed up as like way too purple. And then we go to events and people really believe I am Amelia because my hair looks so purple. That has happened. That's just a whole level of twinning I hadn't considered. That you could color theory blue <laughs> and still be mistaken for the other one. Yeah. Well, I, 
There's a video of me, of Millie and me in the UK in 2019, that is an example of how I went too hard on the purple in order to balance out the yellow and my hair ended up looking just totally purple. I kept talking about how Amelia's one with the purple hair and I have the blue hair and people were looking at me like, hmm, okay. Maybe she's colorblind. We shouldn't say anything about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll be awkward. Um, so we ask all of our guests if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair and you can make one up or, you know, pick from a standard, what would it be? And I love that your cat's just like, I'm going to lift my tail and show you my butt any second. Yeah, she's, she's, <laughs> she's very oh, sweet. Oh, please don't tear this. Oh, please. Oh, the claws. I'm sorry. I want to answer the question. <laughs> Maybe my category is cat wrangler. Uh, so can this be a skill I don't actually have, but I could wish I had? Absolutely. For sure. I wish I could do education that sounded like leading an auction. Oh, if there were a competition for best be sex educator that sounds like an auctioneer. I like that. I would pay good money for that. <laughs> I'm right? sure we could just there's a way I'm sure there's a way in, in audio editing to make that happen. You know, just really like speed up what you've talked about <laughs> and uh, <laughs> kind of overlap it a little. I don't know anything about editing. That's Katie's job. But I feel like that's possible. We'll do it. I think do it a separate might be track, easier Katie, to hire an auctioneer. To... There you go. And, <laughs> and just get just them give to them say a, a lot of general Give them words. a script. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Here are the things I want you to talk about. That is a very... Uh, I, I know a couple of auctioneers. I'm not sure if any of them would take me up on that offer, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll ask. <laughs> you give me a script and I'll see if I can get one of them to do it for me. It's, it's just a fantasy that's going to dwell it. in my head. That's fine. It doesn't have to happen in reality. <laughs> it doesn't. It's oh, really okay. particular one. I'm just trying like to make it. things happen for you. Yeah. So we'll go ahead and move into our cussing and discussing category. We have registered for an online platform where listeners can leave their cussing and discussing entries for us and we'll play them on the show. So go to the show notes for either the speak pipe or the email if you just want to email it to us and we'll read it out for you. Katie, what are you cussing and discussing this week? I went through a couple different ones, but I'm going to stick with the one I started with, which is stores rearranging. Just fucking stop. Our Walmart has completely changed their floor plan twice in the last four years. And I know at this point that their goal is entirely to get customers to never actually set foot in the store again. They want everything done for curbside <laughs> pickup, which is fine for or people Or get so lost that they ADHD buy more stuff while they're looking around. Oh my God. I just don't do it. I come to Walmart to just buy my dish detergent and not talk to anyone or look at anything or think about anything. <laughs> I don't come here to be personally challenged. You know, I just leave it alone. Leave it alone. That's it. That's basically like my life motto at this point for everyone and everything is just leave it alone. Just <laughs> yeah, don't touch stop. it. Stop. <sighs> anyway, Emily, what would you like to cuss and discuss this week? <laughs> uh i think it's probably too dark for me to talk about no i kind of want to hear it now i mean we've talked about putting clothes we have no boundaries at this point, okay so. <laughs> so we've got for the past several years the number of uh 
proposed legislation being presented in state legislatures uh, that is anti-trans has risen every year. The number that is passed has risen every year. And here's the thing. It is not even that these people are seriously anti-trans or want to, quote, eradicate transgenderism, which, P.S., what is that? How do you eradicate transgenderism without eradicating all the trans people and all the people who love them? You don't. You have to eradicate the people and the people who love them. And it's such a small population. It's only like 1% of the population that's trans. Most people who buy into these anti-trans bills will never know a trans person. And it's really easy to hate and perpetrate violence or legislate against people you will never know. And it's not even that the people who are proposing the legislation actually care that much about trans people. They are using it as a wedge issue in order to increase autocracy and fascism in the United States. Because you need a them, and trans people are a really good them because they violate gender norms that a lot of people think are, like, super-duper important, and there's a very small number of them, so you'll never actually meet them and never have to encounter the people to whom you're perpetrating so much harm and trying to legislate out of existence. Was that too dark? Not at all. Uh, um, no, that that's perfect. That's what I'm enraged <laughs> yeah. about. Yeah, we have an and you're not even ad. actually angry about trans people. You're just trying to have more power and using violence and exclusion of trans people as a way to get there. Congratulations, you are like the definition of fascist in the 21st century. <sighs> you can cut any of that that you want to. <laughs> no, no, we have no, a whole it's episode. All, it's all staying in. Yeah, yeah, we have a whole episode coming up where we interviewed. My personal, not my personal, our family physician and got her started on the anti-abortion bills, which. Oh, my God. I think the (laughs) anti-trans bill is just a slightly easier way to hate people than the abortion bill because. They're ideologically like they're both misogyny. But nice white ladies occasionally get abortions, which is a little harder to argue against than (laughs) the trans. So, Right. Yeah. You might actually meet somebody who needed an abortion, you know, because they were 19 months into a pregnancy and it turned out it wasn't viable. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from all the times of like. I cannot afford to have a child or oh, I was don't get me started. Oh, my gosh. Maybe if we had comprehensive <laughs> yeah. sex like, ed, It's a bad time. Like, I felt like we much. were really making progress there for a minute. And now we are like, I mean, this is the way it goes. You move forward. You go back a little. You move forward. You go back a little. This is a very dark time for women's equality in the world. And I just hope people are sort of aware that that's happening and not minimizing what this moment actually is because the future of I'm not exaggerating democracy on earth is being challenged right now. And you can see it in the way women and non-binary and trans people are treated under the law. I thought you were just going to go for the bikini industrial complex, but no, Uh, just, I mean, the thing is like, that's a big deal too. Don't get me started on fucking Ozempic. Don't get me started. Because <laughs> I could. I could go on just as much about the bikini industrial complex. But that's not like new. That's just forever. Yeah. This is, this, <laughs> yeah. There's like a that's whole a- new batch of hate being doled out in legislatures across the nation. Uh, and I, I just need people who are like moderate 
to recognize, I mean, there's the whole Holocaust thing. First they came for this group and I did not say anything. And then they came for these people. Like they're coming. They're coming for us. They have already come for most of the people I care most about. Y'all. 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 Please, yeah. please vote. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> so Arlene, what do you have to cuss and discuss to, to book at? So I had something else. <laughs> there, I had something else, but I'm going to add on to what Emily said. And I may not sound as enraged, but it's on the inside with stacked up with all my other rage. Can we also talk about how politicians and adults seem to want to regulate what happens to trans children and not yes. let those decisions be left to their parents and to their medical providers and to those children themselves and the people who love them. Like you said, the people who love them should be able to make the right decisions and the decisions that are timely and the decisions that make sense for them in the stage that they're at. And trying to make decisions for people who are underage is complicated and it shouldn't be legislated. So stop. Yes. I love that the party of small government really wants to be in the doctor's office with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For lots of different reasons. For so many reasons. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks. I feel better. Okay. <laughs> there. We let, I think we completed some stress response cycles. We had some connection. So thank you so much, Emily, for joining us today and sharing with us and being Katie's therapist and <laughs> talking about so many important topics. So if people want to follow you online, buy your books, any of those types of things, where should they find you? Uh, EmilyNagoski.com has everything, including the eight-episode podcast that I made with Pushkin and Madison Wells. Uh, the books are available wherever books are sold. There's also the Burnout Workbook, which was just published in January. And if you're like, I don't need the science, I don't need to understand why, just tell me what to do. The Burnout Workbook workbook is a uh, that's the one for you. you I go. didn't even know that was skip a thing, the peer review and just it. just just tell me how to fix to it. Yeah, just follow these instructions. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for yeah, having thank me. You. Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy this show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyardlanguage to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.